You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Listen, you know, I think it's going to blow in El Salvador real soon. I thought if you guys could get me a new press card for two grand, I could get you some really good stuff. What do you say? Look, this is serious, okay? I need one for old time's sake. you got to give me 500 bucks to go to El Salvador. They kill people here, boy. You believe everything you read in the papers? Yeah, Come on, man. You're going to love it here. Getting out of here, Boyle. Look, Doc, this is my last chance. If I can get some good combat shots for AP, you know, I can make some money. Whatever you do, okay, don't get on the ground. They're not just shooting the Indians. They're shooting us. Chaos has descended on tiny El Salvador in Central America. They rearranged this kid's molecules and they took their time about it. Richard. He is dying out there right now while we're talking. Those people, cool, man, look at you. Okay? Some of the information or photos you can throw my way. <laughs> fantastic. I mean, they could come tonight, they could take her away, and they could kill her too. Richard, Richard. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Marry me. killer on the right, God knows what on the left, and a gutless middle. Ma'am, these are not combat troops. The ambassador, you know, United States. You gotta get close, Rich, to get the truth. You get too close, you die. <laughs> You're gonna be in big heaven, man. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is currently embedded in the terrorist group Asian Dawn. I read about them in Time magazine. Instead, joining me this week is writer Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, thanks for having me. Also back with us this week is fellow podcaster Jamie Duvall of Movie Geeks United. Great to be back. This week we are looking at the 1986 film from Oliver Stone, Salvador. The film stars James Woods as fast-talking journalist Richard Boyle and James Belushi as his friend Dr. Rock. It's kind of a fear and loathing in Central America with fewer drugs and a lot more shooting of innocent bystanders. Despite being nominated for two Academy Awards, the film was not necessarily a box office success. It was also overshadowed by another little film that Oliver Stone released the same year, Platoon. Matt, as our guest, when was the first time that you saw Salvador, and what did you think? Well, I actually didn't see it until it was on a video. Uh, a friend of mine in high school who was a big film buff introduced, it, uh, introduced me to it. It was the first Oliver Stone film that I remember seeing. I think I might have seen The Hand on Cable before that, but uh, this was the first one that really uh, made an impression on me, and I was just coming of age as a moviegoer. I was in high school, and I was starting to get into the idea that films were made by people, and they had particular sensibilities, just like any artwork, and this was a really important film for me. This was a, a kind of a mind-blowing film, because I hadn't seen an American film of that era that was so explicitly political and also so hardcore in a lot of ways that it was really something new. And 1986 was a great year for American movies in that respect. There were all sorts of films that I think felt extremely personal and, and really kind of raw, like um, 
The River's Edge and Blue Velvet and Manhunter and uh, Something Wild, the Jonathan Demme film. And those were all coming out around the same time, and they and they all made an impression on me to one degree or another. But this one really, really stood out. And uh, the fact that Oliver Stone made this and Platoon in the same year is mind-boggling. He actually had a run of 10 films in 10 years. Between 1986 and 1996, he made, uh, and I'm trying to hope I get this right, in order, he made Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, and uh, Nixon, which was uh, really an amazing, about as amazing a run as any American filmmaker has ever had. And this was the one that kind of started it all. As a young man, Oliver Stone was a great cinematic hero to me, mostly because of Born on the Fourth and JFK. Those two movies are actually annual viewing for me. I, I return to them every year. In terms of Salvador, I remember vaguely watching it when it premiered on probably videotape, but I hadn't returned to it until just this past week in preparation for the show. I came to this film relatively late, as in just this last week. Um, I had never seen this one before, even though I knew it was kind of hanging out there. And I was really glad, Matt, when I asked you to come on the show and let's talk about a stone film and you picked this one. I was like, oh, good. I've never had the opportunity to watch this film before. So I was really glad for that. And I was really very pleasantly surprised by it. I love James Woods, and he is so front and center in this film. I mean, this film is his movie. He's in, what, almost every single shot, and he is our conduit for all of these events that we're seeing in Salvador, in this hotbed of political intrigue and stuff. And I love that it is this kind of larger-than-life, uh, what, agitprop kind of uh, take on the whole situation. And Oliver Stone already, you know, this definitely is going to play into those films that you talked about, where he is so political and just pushing the right buttons. I mean, there are some scenes in here that were truly breathtaking to see some of the imagery and just some of the way that some of the stuff unfold it. A couple of little trivia bits about this. this the, the guy uh, that James Woods plays, Richard Boyle, is a real person. He's, he's a, an American journalist who was previously the author of this 1970 book called The Flower of the Dragon, The Breakdown of the U.S. Army in Vietnam. And he ended up in El Salvador kind of because he really had nothing else to do. His, his, he was in a relationship that had collapsed. He was kind of persona non grata as a journalist at the time. And, and the uh, Oliver Stone knew Richard Boyle through various people, and he was riding around with him in his VW Bug, and in the back of Richard Boyle's car were, was all of this paper, all of this loose paper, and it was his journal from his trip to El Salvador. And Stone picked up the pages and started reading them and said, wow, this is really interesting. What is this for? And he said, oh, that's just my record of my trip to El Salvador. One of these days I might turn it into something. And he said, well, this might be an interesting movie. And they got to talking about it and they eventually decided to write it together into a screenplay. And as far as the casting goes, you know, James Woods got his first um, Oscar nomination for this. And he's great in it. Woods was not originally supposed to play that part. He was going to play Dr. Rock, which is the part that was originally played by James Belushi. And Martin Sheen was going to play um, Richard Boyle. And the reason James Woods got the part is because at some point, like right after they had cast the thing, Richard, uh, rather, James Woods went out to dinner with Oliver Stone and proceeded to tell him why he thought that he, not Martin Sheen, should play the lead role in this film. 
and he was so persuasive that 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 uh, Oliver Stone um, ended up casting James Woods instead. And he told me, I in in process of interviewing him for this book that I'm doing called The Oliver Stone Experience. He told me that story, and he said that he he had some misgivings about Martin Sheen anyway because Martin Sheen was uncomfortable with a lot of the the violence and the sexuality and stuff, because even though Martin Sheen has been in some movies like Badlands and Apocalypse Now, where he's not playing particularly nice people, he's still, uh, you know, a Roman Catholic and and very strong kind of moral values, certainly compared to, say, his son, Charlie. And he was uncomfortable with it. And, and James Woods had no problem with any of it. And Stone immediately sensed that this was probably a better fit for the part. And, and I think ultimately, he was probably right about that. They set up the characters rather quickly before we actually get into the action of of going to Salvador, because really the movie really doesn't even start until they make it into the country. But we do have the setup of the characters. We get these real kind of quick sketches. And I love the editing style of the movie in that there are times where characters almost seem to be in the middle of a line and they'll just cut and move right on to the next thing. There's just this manic energy to the film that I think James Woods really exemplifies. And I can't picture anybody else playing that role. I really can't picture Martin Sheen playing that role just because at least the way that that Woods plays him, he's got that twitchiness to him and that kind of used car salesman patter that he's just constantly throwing out there that whole like i'm a weasel i admit it i get it and just like so fast <laughs> with the way that he's talking and just and his hands are always moving and just it it feels like he's you know hopped up on cocaine the entire movie i wouldn't have been surprised if he actually was but you know it just <laughs> he really does capture that kind of manic energy and that whole kind of like come along with me a uh, martin sheen i don't know if he necessarily could have had that same kind of charisma to draw dr rock into his circle and just like constantly like hitting people up for money and trying to get things from everybody and just playing both sides against the middle at all times and i think woods really pulls that off very well yeah he really does he's and he is um he could talk you out of your shoes, James Woods. I've actually interviewed him a couple of times, and he really is like, I won't say he's exactly like the guy in this movie, but there's a lot of James Woods in this part. There's a lot of improvisation in this movie, particularly with regard to James Woods' dialogue. And in fact, the scene that I think is maybe the greatest moment for him as an actor, um, which is actually the scene that they showed as a clip when he was nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards, is the scene where Richard Boyle goes into the confession booth. Following the way of Christ? Not exactly. I mean, in my heart. Yes, but I've done a lot of, you know, of, you know carnal sins, and I've uh, drunk a lot of alcohol and done some drugs. I kind of weaseled around a lot in my life, you know what I mean? I was trying to get the edge all the time, but basically I would say that I'm a good-hearted person. I haven't really done anything malicious in my life. Um, I haven't done anything really very great in my life either, you know. I've tried to do some things, tried to find some truth. And I do love this woman. For her, I could... You're willing to change for this woman? For this woman, I'm willing to change. I mean, not just... I mean, I would... If God gave me this woman, then there must be a God. So, if he knows what's right, then I would do what's right by him. Just repent. Change your ways. That's going to be a little tough. You know, I... 
you love this woman, you will be willing to change. Okay. I'm still drinking. Take a few hits of a joint or something once in a while, all right? And that's okay. Twelve Our Fathers, ten Hail Marys, an act of contrition. That's it. Ask the Lord for forgiveness from your heart. From my heart. Known this, I would have come earlier, you know, before 33 years, you know. You should have come earlier, yes. I'll come back. Next Thank time, you. don't wait so long. Okay. And he's begging for forgiveness for all of his sins, and he and he talks about how he's reformed, he's going to be a good person from now on, he's not going to drink, he's not going to do drugs, he's going to stay out of whorehouses and all this stuff. And, and as he talks, he starts to carve out exemptions for himself one at a time as he goes along. And I think I think all of it or most of it is done in one shot. And uh, Stone told me that that's, the dialogue in that scene was entirely improvised and that he and James Woods had been fighting. They apparently fought a lot during filming because they're both extremely strong-willed people. And he said right before he went in, he said, I just, he said, I need you, I just want you to go in there and talk. And James Woods said, what am I supposed to say? And he said, just tell him what a weasel you are. And and that's what poured out of him was that that confession booth scene, which is just a great scene. I like that we have this whole road trip, this shitty little red car that they're driving in, and I was really reminded a lot of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as I was watching at least the beginning of this film. And I don't know if it was that you know Doctor Rock reminded me of Doctor Gonzo, even though he really you know the the name is it would fit much more to the James Woods character. Just, I guess, also because Hunter S. Thompson had that kind of magnetism, and he was also the kind of guy who was always pushing against the limits of everything, and that's really what Boyle's character seems to be doing at all times in this film. Well, my working theory about this movie is I think that, that um, the James Woods character is, um, is Richard Boyle, and the Dr. Rock char- character is Oliver Stone. Because they actually did go to El Salvador together on a, on a you know, just to kind of research the movie some more. And I have uh, in the book, I hope it makes into the final cut of the book, but I have some personal photographs that Oliver Stone took while he was down there. These little square black and white snapshots of people and storefronts and roads and all kinds of stuff. And you really get a sense of what it must have been like for those two guys. One of the things that made a huge impression, one is that it's an indictment of U.S. interventionism and the entire mentality that we could just go into other countries and fix them in some way or bring them around to our way of seeing things through money and through force. And there's a lot of dialogue in this movie about the idea that El Salvador was shaping up to be another Vietnam. And there was fear that it was because of communist influence that it was going to become another domino, a domino theory type of situation where all the countries turned communist and the Soviet Union, which was then our biggest enemy, would, would gain a foothold down there. There wasn't really a whole lot of practical evidence to suggest that that was going to happen. What was really happening down there was more um, conflicts between governments and their people and civil wars and things like that. But that was the way it was being presented. And people who were not either alive or young enough to be paying attention to the news at the time don't realize just what a big deal it was to have a major American film come out and say the things that Salvador said. And there had been a couple of attempts prior to that to get into this. One was the... uh, the Costa Gavras thriller Missing, starring Jack Lemmon, and the other one was Under Fire with uh, Nick Nolte, Joanna Pacula, and um, Gene Hackman. But this one felt a little bit more like a coherent statement, and it felt less Hollywood and more guerrilla. 
there's a whole scene in the movie that's like a scene out of a Ken Loach film where James Woods is arguing with these U.S. military advisors, and he's basically laying out the history of U.S. military intervention in Latin America and drawing parallels to Vietnam. And, you know, you think about what was going on at the time that this film hit home video, which is we were midway through Ronald Reagan's second term. The biggest movie in the United States was Top Gun. Rambo, the second Rambo film had come out a year before. And there was just really a sense that we had put the specter of Vietnam behind us. And uh, here came Oliver Stone rattling cages and causing trouble. It was very, very exciting. And then, of course, he followed up with Platoon. Well, and it's funny um, that we can have Tom Cruise go from being Maverick and Top Gun to being the star of Born on the Fourth of July. Well, that's one of the brilliant casting strokes in the history of American movies, in my opinion, because, you know, you had this guy who, after Top Gun, was pretty much as close to a male version of the Statue of Liberty as we had at that moment in our history. And here's Oliver Stone, like, taking Maverick from Top Gun, shooting him from the spine and having him piss through a tube. And and it was it was remarkable. And even if Tom Cruise hadn't given what is, in my opinion, still the best single performance he's ever given in that movie, it still might have made an impact just from seeing you know, Maverick from Top Gun put in that predicament. He's always been good at that. He's always been good at casting people in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be cast. Like, you know, Jennifer Lopez, as we know it, I think really came into her own in U-Turn. And a lot of people were shocked that he had cast her in that because that's a that's a part that requires some serious commitment. And she, I think she pulled it off. And Val Kilmer in The Doors, like Val Kilmer's biggest credit up to that point, I think, had been Top Secret, and he played some other parts that were pretty good, but but the idea of casting the guy from Top Secret as Jim Morrison seemed a little weird, but I think he was about as good as Jim Morrison as anybody could have been. And there are plenty more examples like that in his filmography, I think. What strikes me about Salvador is it feels like Oliver Stone's first film, uh, where in point of fact it's actually not, but but you feel his his unique voice starting to blossom in Salvador. So you get a sense of his adventure spirit and his ferocity. Uh, I mean, there's such a tremendous uh, energy in the film. And you're right, absolutely, it's epitomized by James Wood's performance. But also something that strikes me about it is it's one of those films where, as you're watching it, you feel the experience of what it must have been like to shoot it. Like it's embedded in the marrow of the movie much like Apocalypse Now, which makes it very interesting that Martin Sheen was his first choice. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, originally, when they were going to shoot the movie, the original plan was to shoot the movie in El Salvador. And they went down to El Salvador and they actually talked <laughs> they actually talked to the government of El Salvador and they made arrangements to shoot the movie there. They prepared a dummy version of the script. They wrote the entire script that it was basically a fake version of the script. This sounds like it could maybe be the plot of a movie in and of itself. But they gave it to the government, and in this version of the script, the right-wing uh, government of El Salvador was the good guys. And they bought it. You know, everybody was mum about it. And, and, you know, they ended up shooting the movie in Mexico. It didn't work out for a variety of reasons. But I just love the audacity of them thinking that they could go into El Salvador and shoot this entire movie on location with no one being the wiser about the fact that they that the script was a fake and the conflict in El Salvador was still well underway. I mean, that whole conflict lasted for, what, like 12, 13 years. Starts yeah. in 79, I believe, and goes all the way up to like 92. So it just 
yeah, an incredible amount of time, an incredible amount of bloodshed, money, and just reading the history of it, even when it's boiled down to something like a Wikipedia article, it's like, wait a second, so it went from you know, this group to this group and then back to this group and who is funding who and who's going on and just all the, the dirty tricks and the CIA involvement and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, this was prime Stone. I mean, Stone, who had lived through Vietnam and who really was the one who, who is there, you know, tolling the bell like, hey, look at we've got this other situation. You guys need to pay attention. And I love all those times where people in the movie are like, I wasn't even old enough to remember Vietnam. And it's like, oh, man, it just it hurts every time somebody says that. What's also very important is Robert Richardson's involvement. He, Robert Richardson had shot footage in Salvador and so he, he was an invaluable asset to Oliver Stone and one of the all-time great cinematic collaborations. Uh, it's just astounding the work that they did together, but it all started right there. Well, he is, I believe, the only, I think there's only one other cinematographer who's been nominated, one, I can't remember which, for three Oscars. No, it's actually, he's the only three-time Oscar winner for cinematography besides uh, Vittorio Storaro who shot uh, Apocalypse Now, The Conformist, Last Tango in Paris, and so on. And uh, Robert Richardson was started out as a documentary filmmaker, that's right. And the, the movie definitely has the energy of a documentary, although it's considerably more stylized. And Richardson's collaboration with Stone, I think, is a really important part of that period. I think he shot every single one of Stone's 10 films during that period, and they got increasingly, the two of them, more and more adventurous in the way they shot things. And if you look at Salvador, which is shot uh, documentary style in the sense that you're, you know, you're looking at situations that have been created for the camera and then are shot as if they're just happening in front of the camera. And then you go on to Platoon, which is much more lyrical and controlled. And then to Wall Street, which is kind of like an R-rated version of a Hollywood sort of muckraking potboiler movie. And then uh, Talk Radio, which is really a hothouse, like almost like a 12 Angry Men sort of thing. Like how much mileage can we get out of a, a story that's a, that probably 70 to 80 percent of it is in this one set, the radio station. And then Born on the Fourth of July, which is his first widescreen film and looks like, you know, deliberately like a, a, an issue of, of a Life magazine with these beautiful Technicolor images. And that was his first film in widescreen. And he just goes on from there to the point where you get to JFK and he's experimenting with all of these crazy editing patterns that would be so influential. And then on to Natural Born Killers, where you think he pushed that about as far as it can go. And then he gets a U-turn and he pushes it even further. It's just amazing. And Richardson was right in the middle of that the whole time. I love Richardson. He's my favorite conversation of any I've ever had with a filmmaker. What he does in that movie, I mean, he gives it such a sense of urgency the way he shoots it. You get the sense of, because the production was constantly threatened with being shut down, and it actually did, but you, you get the sense of, we got to get the shot, get the shot, get the shot, which mirrors uh, the role of a war photographer, I'm sure, as well. And on top of that, there was, you know, it's funny, you mentioned earlier this, the fact that this is Oliver Stone's third film. There was a book, I guess it was 10, maybe 12 years ago, called My First Movie which is interviews with directors about their first movies. And Oliver Stone is in that book. And he is the only person in the book who does not talk about his first movie. He talks about his third movie, which is Salvador. And he asked the editor of the book, would you mind terribly if I talked about Salvador instead of my first two movies, which were respectively Seizure from 1974 and A Hand from, I guess, 82. 
because he said he felt that it was with Salvador that he started to come into his own as a filmmaker, but also as a person. And and to understand the person part, you have to go back through Stone's biography. Stone was a was a rich kid. His his uh, his father worked on Wall Street. He grew up in privilege. And he was raised by his dad, who was a big Nixon supporter and a Republican. And even though he went to Vietnam, he went to Vietnam uh, basically to kind of get outside of himself and sort of destroy the 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 Oliver Stone who had existed up to that point. And it was, and he later told me it was almost like a death wish, like a suicide wish, wanting to go to Vietnam. But the whole time he was there, he believed in the anti-communist cause. He believed the stories that his father had told him. And he continued to be um, a Republican, basically a, a very conservative kind of guy, even though he was, you know, he was into drugs and, and alcohol and women and stuff like his political convictions were basically conservative, even when he went to NYU in the early 1970s. And he was surrounded by, as he put it, these students who were treating the film class like it was a Maoist collective. And he felt really out of his element there. And he kept himself. He didn't talk very much. And it wasn't until he he made a short film on, uh, for his film professor, who was Martin Scorsese, who he clearly learned a lot from. He made a film about his Vietnam experience called Last Year in Vietnam, which, as the title would suggest, was strongly modeled on European art cinema from the 60s, like Last Year in Marienbad. He started to use cinema as an expressive tool, but he was basically apolitical up until the early 80s, and he credits um, his association with Richard Boyle, his trips to El Salvador, his reading about the situation in Central America, and then the making of El Salvador with being the, the experiences that started to radicalize him. And he didn't really start to become the Oliver Stone that we know until after Salvador. And in fact, I, in the process of researching the book, I reread this New York Magazine story from 1986, around the time the platoon came out. And his brother said in the story that when he saw Salvador for the first time, he could not believe it that it was made by Oliver Stone. He couldn't believe it. I'm sorry, his cousin. He said that it was like a different guy had made this movie. He, you know, it was like this person bears no relation to the Oliver Stone that I've always known. Like he clearly had become his own person. Um, and that's what, that's what the movie Salvador did for him. More than being a director at that point, Stone was known as a screenwriter and had written so many things that, and I know that this is crazy talk when it comes to screenwriting, but stuff that actually had gotten picked up and made. I mean, so many things that we still recognize today, like, you know, Scarface, we talked about him on the Conan and the Barbarian episode, Midnight Express, what, Year of the Dragon. So he had a really good career as a screenwriter going on uh, even without the directing and then it really kind of all came together with platoon and with salvador where he was the artist the writer director of both of those i i think very highly of his screenwriting actually and i know a lot of people are down on it because he he does he deals in archetypal characters and situations there's a very strong melodramatic streak in his movies and, and a lot of cases you know people accuse him of preaching you know, of, of delivering a sermon, but he cops to all of that stuff. And he's really adamant that he's, you know, far from being embarrassed by it. He's quite proud of it. And, and this is a guy who, you know, loved, uh, Jean-Luc Godard in his radicalized seventies period. And he loved the films of, um, Stanley Kramer, the guy who made that judgment at Nuremberg and inherit the wind. And he's very much a, a guy who wants to deliver a message and wants to stand on a soapbox, but all that, 
said, I think ultimately he's a better director than he is a writer. And, and I think directorially he is one of the, among the very most interesting American directors, like in terms of person behind the camera of that period. In the eighties, I think it's him and Spike Lee and everybody else. I mean, they might be tied for first in terms of innovative techniques for shooting narrative cinema in America and, and everybody else is second, third, fourth or whatever. And there are some great filmmakers who are working, who came of age in the eighties. I don't mean people who were around before that, but people who really burst into the scene in the eighties. I think it's Stone and Spike Lee really right at the top. And, and I look back at some of that stuff from that period. Stone's films, but also Spike Lee, who, who also had an amazing run, like he did, you know, She's Gotta Have It, School Days, uh, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, Mo' Better Blues, actually, I reversed those last two, and Malcolm X, he had five in a row that I think were about as good as any American filmmakers made, and both of those guys, what they had in common was, they were in the wrong decade. They were making movies in the wrong decade. They were 70s filmmakers who happened to somehow break through in the 80s and get their movies funded at a level where they had some production values and some and some good actors. We've seen very, very few examples of that happening after that. Like once in a while you get an outlier like and also even even somebody like a Paul Thomas Anderson or or Wes Anderson or James Gray or someone like that, Sofia Coppola, they're all fascinating filmmakers. None of them were political in the way that Oliver Stone and Spike Lee were and continue to be. What I love about Oliver Stone is the the kind of the combination between the savagery and the idealistic. So I never felt yeah. like I was being preached to in a Stone movie. I mean, uh, watching JFK, I, I think a lot of its critics didn't know how to watch that movie. For me, it was a cry for people to wake up. This is this is your country. It was the most patriotic movie I could imagine. What I also see in common between uh, Stone and Spike Lee in their best works is that the, their films just bleed passion. You have to see these stories. You know, there's such an such an urgency and a passion to what they do in those films. Another thing that that made a huge impression on me as a as a high school student watching Salvador was, I don't remember. There must have been some other American films from the '80s that did this. But the first one that I really remember going, holy shit, I didn't know you could do that with Salvador, is to have characters who were not sympathetic by any conventional Hollywood standard, Dr. Rock and Richard Boyle, who were making valid points. And you had to take their points seriously despite who they were. And Stone did that time and time again in his movies, where it's like the messenger was uh, somebody that was basically a pariah for one reason or another, but the message was something that you couldn't discount. And I think that, to me, that only added to his value. Yes, he is very political. Yes, he might be a little preachy, but I think that it's coming from the right place. And it feels like he's kind of embracing more of those films, like a like an Hour of the Furnaces or something, where it's just kind of, yeah, like you were saying, a wake-up call. Just like, And sometimes, you know, truth be damned, you know, he's going to take all kinds of events and cram them all together just you know, for a narrative purpose, but also just to kind of keep throwing things onto the fire, just like, well, there's this thing, and then there's this other thing. You know, I mentioned in the intro the the whole idea of some of these images in the film that are just so amazing, and that uh, those hills that are just covered in dead bodies when uh, you've got Mm -hmm. Woods and John Savage out there taking photographs. I mean, that one was one of those, like, you know, my heart kind of 
caught in my throat when I was seeing that and just picturing, you know, of course, we've got the killing fields of Cambodia, but I just don't think that people realized the kind of killing that was going on in Salvador. In listening to Stone's commentary, he's like, yeah, well, we might have added some few more bodies, but it was really more of the idea of this is happening and really trying to just take the audience and shake them into some sort of awareness. Here, this is my from my opening essay about Salvador for the uh, for the book. The stories of Boyle and Dr. Rock are intertwined with the Salvadoran Revolution, but never seem entirely a part of it. This is by design. The movie is partly about what it means to get involved, to intervene, to commit conditions that Americans, especially American politicians, throw around in a cavalier way. Never thinking about what it truly means to supply or deny aid, to send advisors, to put, quote, boots on the ground, to topple or establish a government, and how these and other actions continue to resonate in the targeted country and in surrounding countries for decades after the Americans have turned tail and gone home. And then Boyle says, if Major Max takes power, you people could sure use some good press. Major Max being the general who's modeled on Roberto D'Aguisson. Uh, Boyle tells Ramon Alvarez, a leader in a left-wing party, before trying to settle on photos of a right-wing death squad victims. Ramon snaps and throws the portfolio of negatives at Boyle, then indicates women looking through books of photographs of citizens who have been kidnapped and probably murdered. Good press, he, star- he snarls. There are 10,000 desparacides, and every day the list grows, and Yupendeos talk about good press. We're constantly aware that for all their distress and Boyle's increasing, increasing fervor, these Americans are tourists, and that if they don't get into too much trouble, they can always leave. Boyle's girlfriend, Maria, can't. That's why the cedulas, the identitad, border travel papers like the letters of transit in Casablanca are so important. Boyle can decide to change his life and then actually change it or talk about the importance of change without truly changing, which is what the confession booth scene is about. He and other Yankee characters have privileges as Americans, specifically American men, that no Salvadoran will ever have unless he's pointing a gun at Boyle's face. And like, I think the movie gets all of that stuff. Like, that's all in the movie. And it's a very, it's a very politically complex, sophisticated way of looking at not just the situation in that country, but the American view of the situation in that country and the limitations to our understanding. There's a way in which Oliver Stone's movies are obvious. But there's also a kind of a rope-a-dope aspect where the things that people accuse as movies of being obvious about are not all that they're about. And like once you get past the surface level of his movies, there's often something very, very complex happening that a lot of his critics don't even notice. And to me, that's the mark of the great of a great filmmaker that they can do that. I think a lot of Spielberg's um, non-popcorn movies are that way too, like films like Munich and Amistad. They have a touch of that too, where you. You know, people complain, oh, it's broad strokes, it's broad stroke storytelling, he's so obvious, everything's an archetype. It's like, yeah, that's how he gets people in the theater. But look at what's actually happening in the movie. It's not that simple. Many times when I watch a movie, I look for that, or read a play, I look for that one line that kind of summarizes what the movie's really about. And what I found in that climb up the hill with the bodies was it was... For me, it was obviously John Savage's line where he says, you got to get close to get the truth. Right. Because uh, Woods is not uh, entirely invested in, 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 in what he's trying to capture it, like like a great war photographer should be. And I think that's the, the role of John Savage's character to bring that element into it. Savage is an interesting character in that he really doesn't even talk a lot. When he's on screen, he just kind of weaves his way in and out of the story. And when he's on screen, he doesn't say a whole lot. He's got a couple key lines, and that's about it. 
Yeah, that's true. And he's sort of uh, almost like an accusing specter for, for Boyle and Dr. Rock because he's completely, totally committed to the truth. And I think his example inspires them to, to take it a little more seriously, ultimately, in the end. And yet the movie, I think, strikes a, not exactly a despairing note, but it's certainly not a happy ending. That ending. Like, I, I always feel a sense of helplessness. I mean, there's a, creatively, there's, it's a, there's a sense of elation at that ending because I feel like it's the right ending, but it's not a happy ending. And I think that's realistic too. And it's amazing how many of Oliver Stone's movies, including ones that were quite successful, that got a lot of Oscar nominations and even made a lot of money, have an ending that it's not like, yay, everything's going to be fine now, but it's more like the best he'll give you is there's hope. The past is prologue. Right. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's hope later. Like, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a happy ending in an Oliver Stone film. Like, the end of JFK, it's almost perverse, the end of JFK, because, you know, he goes in with this half-assed case because he can't get any evidence. He loses. He fails to make his case. The, the, the movie ends in defeat, and it walks out. He's walking out of the courtroom with his wife and kids, and that John Williams score is swelling and you're like, yay! And then you get out of the theater and you're like, wait a minute, he didn't win shit. I joke to him that it's like, it's almost like an old Hollywood trick. Like all these old Hollywood movies, like my favorite example is the Jimmy Cagney movie, The Roaring Twenties, which has the song, uh, Melancholy Baby, you know, come to me, my melancholy baby. It's like this really happy song. That's, that's a recur, that's a motif in the, in the score of the film. And you get to the end of the movie, and James Cagney's character has been machine gunned to death on, I think, the steps of a courthouse. And and he's and he, you know his girlfriend runs over and says he used to be a big shot. And the song goes, it goes into a minor key. It goes you like come to me, my melancholy baby, like sadness. And then it goes into a minor key. It goes into a minor key at the end. And it says the end, and it's like and I remember even as a young kid seeing this on like PBS or whatever, I was like, what the fuck? They just killed James Cagney. This isn't a happy ending, but it's like, I guess they thought that if they made the song go into a minor key again, people would leave the theater going, well, that was delightful. You know, it's interesting, too, because as provocative as Oliver Stone is in his work, I, I, I do feel from him a real affection for old Hollywood. And, and not only in the cast that he puts together, which he... He's great about putting uh, terrific veterans in his movies. I mean, from Charlton Heston to Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau to even somebody like Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, you get a, you get from him that he has a great respect for that generation of actor. But at the same time, I think he takes these dramas like the melodrama or, uh, or the courtroom drama, and he and he works to turn them on their head in a way. I mean, you can even say when yeah. Salvador starts when Salvador starts out. I mean, it's quite comical. Uh, particularly in that first uh, first act, and you could even right. say he's he's playing off of a, a road movie. Yeah, it definitely has a touch of that to it. How many Oliver Stone films end with title cards? I, you know, I should know the answer to this, but uh, I think maybe only Wall Street does. But many of them feel like they should. But he definitely uh, is a fan of old Hollywood. In fact, the last official conversation that I had with him for this book was uh, I was talking to him about his new film, Snowden, and we went off on this tangent about Hollywood films of the 30s. And actually, the 30s is, I think, his favorite era of Hollywood, um, maybe tied with the 60s. And he loves 1930s, though, that particularly the early 30s before the production code kicked in, because those movies were dirty. 
<laughs> those movies, like if you go back and look at some of those movies that made before the Hayes Code went into effect, they were sexy. There were, you know, there were people who were having extramarital sex. There were, you know, there were prostitutes. People were getting drunk. People were having abortions. People were killing each other really violently, and you weren't expected to think it was justified. It was much more like almost like a 70s movie in a way. And then at some point, Hollywood said, we can't have this. We just can't have this. But, uh, but yeah, he loves that. But he definitely loves uh, the idea of telling a story on a big scale. And I know that's been tremendously frustrating for him because the failure, the box office failure of Nixon, which I think is probably, uh, in my opinion, that and Born on the Fourth of July are, I think, his two altogether best films, although he's made some really good ones. But that one made him it made it really, really hard for him to get big budgets. He never really quite managed to do it in Hollywood in the system again. And the closest he got was uh, Any Given Sunday, which was um, supposed to be a sports film, like like just a straightforward kind of football movie, but somehow it became an Oliver Stone film. That's a really interesting movie, and I don't know if people really properly appreciated just how much is going on in that movie and how much it is ahead of the curve. Like, Concussion is coming out this Christmas, well, all of that stuff was covered in any given Sunday in 1999, like all of these sports medicine issues. Um, and then um, Alexander, which I'm, I, I'm certain is the most expensive movie ever made about a bisexual, for sure, $200 million. And he raised the money from like seven or eight different countries. And I think only a piece of that came from one of others. But he he's never been able to get back to the level that he was at in the 90s um, when he was making films like JFK and Nixon and Born on the, and Born on the Fourth of July. And and it's in, in my opinion, it's sort of a, um, if not a miracle, certainly an anomaly that he was ever able to do it in the first place. There are times when I go back and look at movies like Salvador, Platoon, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, and I, and I see studio logos in front of them or major distributor logos, and I think, how did this happen? I don't understand well, is, it. I, to this day, I don't yeah. understand how how Oliver Stone happened. It was only because his movie, like critics noticed him, and some of his films were hit. That's the only reason it happened. Well, this is one of the things that most perplexes me about Oliver Stone, and I don't mean to be disrespectful when I bring up this point because, like I said, he's a, an absolute cinematic hero of mine. He's he's made films that have shaped my love of movies and and have changed my life in a way, but. There seems to be a loss of that sense of vitality in his narrative work for a while now. You know, when you look at some of our actors became popular in the 70s, like a De Niro or a Pacino, there was such a hunger there. And after mm-hmm. a while, maybe they feel like, what do I have left to prove? Or maybe they get tired of fighting. I mean, are either of those points valid with Oliver Stone, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of things happened with Oliver Stone. One of them, in my opinion, was the he and Robert Richardson got a divorce, basically. And and I've read conflicting versions of exactly why it happened. I've read versions that said that it was Stone who initiated it. He in the book he says it was his fault, um, and Richardson has indicated that it was it started on his end, but. I think the two of them together were really a perfect match. Like, I, I really think that they're, you know, in the way that, say, uh, Robert Yeoman and, we- and Wes Anderson are a perfect match, or, or Paul Thomas Anderson and Robert Ellswit. Um, or for a while there, um, Francis Ford Coppola and Vittorio Storaro, um, I thought they made great stuff uh, from Apocalypse Now on through uh, the 80s. 
but that's part of it. But also it's just that the kinds of movies that Oliver Stone makes, it was, it, it, you know, you require stars to get the money. It's almost like I'm quoting Scarface again. Like you get the money, then you get the women, but you got to get the, you know, you got to get the stars to get the money. And then, and that's the only way you can get the money. And because his movies were not making money really after Nixon, he couldn't get the stars. I think that was a big part of it. Although he came pretty close in 2007 uh, he was going to make a movie called Pinkville, which was about the My Lai Massacre. It would have been his fourth Vietnam film. And I've read the screenplay to Pinkville, and it is, it is a great, great script. And it would have been a great movie, and it was going to star Bruce Willis and Channing Tatum. And uh, funding fell through. I think there was a Screen Actors Guild strike or a writer's strike. I can't remember which. But the project fell apart, and a lot of projects are falling apart. Um, but I think that one might have put him back on top. Some of his movies from that post, like, I think he continued to be vital right up until any given Sunday, which I, I don't think has gotten the appreciation it deserves. But even after that, he continued to make interesting movies. I think if you look at World Trade Center without preconceived notions, like, look at it as, as a survival story with a spiritual bent, I think that's a really interesting film, really good, uh, at least as good as something like Talk Radio or Wall Street. And I think W is is fascinating. Uh, I'm a big fan of Savages. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I think that is a really, really good, dirty, nasty, early Oliver Stone feeling kind of movie. And I've seen Snowden, and I don't know if I'm even supposed to say anything about it, but I think Snowden's really good. I think, and in fact, Snowden is, I think, you know, altogether his most appealing film in at least 15 years, maybe longer. And it feels a bit like if you can imagine a combination of born, you know, born on the 4th of July and the story of a conser a culturally conservative young man who becomes disillusioned and rebels against his own government and then cross it with elements of JFK, because the paranoia, the surveillance in the sense that there's a big security state out there looking to screw us. That's kind of what you've got. Like, it really feels like old school stone to me. Well, I've heard that he's gotten his, a lot of his mojo back with Snowden. And I think I probably heard that from you via our mutual friend, Aaron. Uh, but, uh, also, uh, you know, I, I'm heartened that he had a big, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, project, um uh, that, that he had invested a lot in, but that, that wasn't a go because the estate didn't approve of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. untold history is no small feat. I mean, to be honest, that's, that's a mammoth, ambitious production. No, it's, it, it is, and, and I lo I'm awfully fond of that. And in fact, I, I said, I told more than one person, and I don't think I necessarily was doing a good job of, of uh, encouraging them to see it, but when people ask me, what is it like? And I said, Untold History is probably the closest that any of us are ever going to get to being inside the head of Oliver Stone. Because I felt like, like that's a purely montage-driven documentary. There's no talking heads. It's just newsreel footage, photographs, charts, graphs, maps, that kind of stuff. And Oliver Stone narrating the entire fucking thing himself. And he's got this wonderful voice, like this William F. Buckley boarding school voice. Like he says, idea instead of idea. And, and, and like he should be, you know, debating Buckley on Crossfire or something back in the day. But, uh, yeah, I like that a lot. And I think Oliver Stone is not, I, I wouldn't count him out, in fact. When I think about Oliver Stone, like I think it's, there's no question that that run of 10 films that he had from 90, 1986 to 96 was his peak. And even he knows that's his peak. And he, and it frustrates him that the work he did after that has not been scrutinized as closely as that work. 
Uh, and I think he's right to be a little frustrated because it is interesting, and I don't think it's been—I I don't think it's gotten the audience a lot of it deserves. I'm reminded of something that Armand White, who I used to write with at New York Press, said to me one time. It was like 20 years ago. We were talking about Marlon Brando, and I was at the time—I think I was in my late 20s—and Brando had just come out with some kind of shitty film. I don't remember which one it was, but I said, "I'm so disappointed in Marlon Brando." He he gave so many great performances in the 60s and early 70s, and then he just started to become a parody himself, of himself. And I don't think he ever lived up to the to the peak of something like The Godfather and Last Tango in Paris, which came out pretty much back to back. And Armin's response was, he said, Matt, there have been maybe 10 performances in the history of motion pictures that are as good as any movie. And Brando's given at least three of them. Give him a fucking break. Mm-hmm. And I always think of that, and I always think, yeah, that's, there, there, there's something to that. Like, Stone, and I'm not saying that I necessarily, you know, I don't think you should write off Stone's post, say, 1999 output. I think there's a lot of good there. But even if you accept the idea that his peak years were 86 to 96, that's 10 films in 10 years, that's like, you know, who else has made that much great work in such a tight time span? The Beatles? And who else? I'm not dismissing Stone or counting him out. And, and to his credit, I never feel like he's, like some directors have become a parody or a, a sellout. So I'm always rooting for Oliver Stone. But back to the Richardson collaboration, because he and I talked a lot about his collaborations with Oliver Stone. Since Richardson, he has jumped from one DP to another. I mean, do you feel like he's searching for... His next, his next Richardson, he's feeling out for someone else he can gel with and, and be challenged by in the same way. You know, he's turning seventy next year, Stone. So if he's going to find somebody else to be his chief, you know, visual collaborator, he better hurry. But I think that uh, Anthony Dodd Mantle, who who shot Snowden, I hope that he works with Anthony Dodd Mantle again because having seen Snowden, I really like the look of that film a lot. They modeled that movie on uh, paranoid thrillers in the 70s, and it's widescreen. You know, it's it's like really cinemascope, like even a little wider than cinemascope dimensions. And they do a lot. There's a lot of negative space and a lot of use of like architecture crowding out these little tiny figures. And there's a lot of filmmaking where the placement of characters and objects in the frame is itself kind of commenting on the action, like if you know what I mean. And I don't want to give anything away, but there's a number of scenes where you feel paranoid and sort of hounded, and you don't really know why, and it's all just because of the way the shot is composed. It's interesting. So I feel like there's something going on with Anthony Dodd Mantle and Oliver Stone, and I hope it continues. Uh, And, of course, for people who don't know the name, Anthony Dodd Mantle shot most of Danny Boyle's movies, including um, Slumdog Millionaire, which I think he I think he won or was nominated for an Oscar for that. And 28 Days Later, which is my favorite Danny Boyle film. He shot that. I visited the set of Snowden when they were shooting in Washington, D.C., and it was quite an experience to see um, Oliver Stone like he seemed to be in better spirits than in the at any point in the three or so years that I've been interviewing for this book. And uh, he was um, giving impromptu lectures to Joseph Gordon-Levitt about the, uh, you know, the political icons of the 60s. And uh, it was funny. And he was saying, you know, he introduced me to to uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Clay Snowden on the set. And he said, this is Matt. He's writing a book about my work. And uh, Levitt said, what is it called? And I said, it's called the Oliver Stone Experience. And he said, and he said, that's a reference to the Jimi Hendrix experience. 
you know who Jimi Hendrix is, right? And and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt said, "Yeah, Oliver, I know who Jimi Hendrix is." <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty funny. And then uh, at the one time, he actually it was funny. I expected that he was going to pal around with the cast and crew, but once he got to Washington, he was hanging out with historians. And I went to a dinner with Oliver Stone. And it was all of these professors and associate professors and people from different universities who had come to um, Washington at his invitation. And, and he threw them into this into a protest scene as extras. He handed them cards. And I quickly found this out about Oliver Stone, that if you visit his set, you're going to be in the movie. And I'm actually in the movie. They cut the scene, but there's I'm an extra walking behind Joseph Gordon-Levitt at one point <laughs> in a scene. But uh, one, but he was at dinner with all of these historians, and they're sitting there having these like incredibly geeky arguments about American history and European history, and and the you know the possible future of the European Union. And at one point, he's arguing with uh, Peter Kuznick, who co-wrote Untold History, about whether Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton was the greater founding father. And Stone's a Hamilton man, and Kuznick is a Thomas Jefferson supporter. And at one point, they were, they reminded me of a couple little kids, like, arguing about whether, like, Iron Man can beat up Batman. <laughs> you know, like, that was the level of it. But, uh, anyway, but yeah, I think he's, 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 a Stone is still a character, and I, and I, and I think there's still incredible vitality there. And I hope that people, uh, really look at what he's doing with Snowden, because I think it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's top tier Oliver Stone, uh, but it's definitely like on the level of something like The Doors or Talk Radio or Wall Street, like that level. You know, like not everything can be JFK. I don't think this movie is JFK, but it's it's a really fucking good movie, and it's and it's got a good love story, which is something that you can't say about most Oliver Stone films. Let's take a break real quick, and I want to play an interview. Actually, it's the second half of an interview that I did with Michael Murphy, where he talks a little bit about Oliver Stone. And we're going to play that after just these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain. And good ones 
are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. I'm trying to remember what you shot in the Philippines. Uh, It was uh, The Year of Living Dangerously. Oh, that's right. Okay. And we got run out of there. I don't know if you ever heard that story, but that was really interesting. Um, We started getting these um, anonymous letters. We were shooting all that poverty, you know. And they misunderstood. It was a Muslim, they were Muslims, and they misunderstood the politics of the picture, you know. And they said, "We're going to, you know, shoot some people and that kind of stuff." And it was an interesting thing because the Aussies didn't want anything. That, you know, they were tough guys. You know, they were big. We had a big strapping crew, but boy, when the guns came out, they didn't want anything to do with it. And, and I remember Linda Hunt and uh, Sigourney Weaver and I were the only Americans, and we were so used to seeing guys packing guns that then, you know we were saying, "What's the matter with this? What do you? What's the matter with you guys?" You know. So we were out of there. We were out of there within a couple of days because the crew just didn't want anything to do with it. Once the once the week, I remember what they called a meeting and lunch, and next thing I knew, uh, we were at the airport. <laughs> and then we finished, a lot of stuff we were going to shoot there, we finished in Sydney. They had to kind of reconnoiter, and, you know, we took a couple of weeks off while they picked up the places they wanted to shoot. And, uh, and a lot of that stuff, a lot of that very exotic stuff was shot in Sydney. I mean, and anybody who looked vaguely Asian was hired. You know, it was like if you worked worked at a Chinese restaurant, you know, they were all out there. They they'd round they rounded them all up. You know, so he, they I thought they did a really remarkable job of making it work because it was. I mean, what the, the stuff that they ran into shooting it was was very difficult. You know, yeah, my, that was probably the toughest one. I logistically, I think that I. You know, work work in there, or where things kind of got dicey, and then they pulled it together. You know, you're okay on Salvador, though. Yeah, um, that was another interesting though. They took <laughs> God, I've forgotten that. I read the big faux pas on, on Salvador was that um, we uh, they took apparently they had I don't know I think a million dollars to shoot the picture and. Uh, they put it into the peso because they figured they'd get some more money, you know. They could they could do give a go for further and I mean within a day and a half the bottom had fallen out of the peso and they lost tax <laughs> budget. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, they were they were kinda of nervous about that. But he did a remarkable job um getting that done. I mean, because he he really was he really was strapped for cash, uh, Oliver. And uh, I remember there's a little ton of handheld stuff, you know, and we weren't we weren't wasting any time. It was, you know, he kept kept moving. You know, it was in the in those days. You 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 went out with these little crews and made those movies. It wasn't like um, you didn't have to like turn the Titanic around to keep shooting. You know, <laughs> like a few of 
<laughs> we all know about. And that was all part and parcel of this kind of auteur thing that was going on. You know, it was uh, kind of, um, you know, okay, we'll just grab it by the skin of our teeth and keep going. We, you know, and I remember one point, um, I didn't, again, with all, Oliver, I didn't know he had that... Uh, that uh, background, you know, and with the uh, with Vietnam and all that, and I, we're out mm-hmm. in, we were out in the woods. I mean, in the jungle there, which was really, you know, twenty minutes from Acapulco. I mean, where, you know, but it just looked like you, you were, you know, in the Amazon or something. And um, he's and there was carrying all this stuff with the money and everything, and we're trying to get the shot, and it's hotter than hell. And he just had that thousand yard stare, you know, he's looking out into the into the jungle and I, I said to him, I said, Were you did you ever go to Vietnam? And he said, Yeah, yeah, I was over there, you know. And we got talking about it. And I said, What did you because I knew he was good. I mean I knew this was a real interesting, you know, thing he was doing on this shoestring. I said, What are you um what are you gonna do next? He said, Well I got he said, I don't know, I've got this army thing in my back pocket that I've had forever and I, nobody wanted to make it so I I kind of let it go, and I have moved on now, but now some guy wants to make it, and he says, so I may just do it. And, of course, it was platoon, you know. And he, he was, he, he thought he'd let, he'd let go of that, you know. I think with Salvador, he felt that he'd kind of let go of it, because he had, that was a little bit autobiographical. He and the guy who wrote it, whose name was Boyle, I think, he, they were hanging around down there, you know, and one of them got on a death death list, you know, with those right wingers, and um, they they were taking chances. They both had girlfriends down there or something, you know. They were, you know, Oliver was kind of a crazy guy, and Boyle certainly was. I mean, he was really a character. He came, he showed up, and we all went to lunch one day, and uh, I mean, they were <laughs> they were serious wise guys. But you know, you go to I mean, and certainly in Oliver's case, you go to Vietnam and go through all that when you're a young kid, and um, you know that'll leave you right. oh, <laughs> one yeah. wondering. You know, I mean, I mean, I remember. I'm way off the subject, but when I first went to Hollywood, and I'm working, I, almost every director I worked with um, had had. I was a young, you know, just out of school. Um, it, it, almost every one of them had fought in World War Two. You know. So they were like really full-grown adults. I mean, they were like, I mean, Altman was in his 30s, and I looked at him like he was my father, you know. And he'd been, you know, here he, he at 19, he'd been over there dropping bombs all, you know, all over um, Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, and being shot at. And, um, you know, he just, he, I mean, what's the movie studio? What kind of threat is the movie studio to a guy like that, you know? And uh, so they were really interesting guys, you know. They were, they were. It was like you were dealing with men, you know. And Oliver had that kind of thing, except that he was, he was, you know, the product of Vietnam, which was a kind of a little more on the wild side, you know. But 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 passionate about making these pictures, you know. He was really, uh, he was real serious about it, you know. And. Uh, and you know, in those days too, because I kind of got off off the mark with Bob early in my career. I mean, it was it was easier in a way because guys would all always see each other's movies, and they you kind of get passed around a little bit, you know. I mean, I kinda, yeah, you were with them all the way from like combat days, right? Yes, uh-huh, that's where we first met. Yeah, so that was in the early '60s, and I remember walking on that set, and Bob. I remember I was, it was that was my first job, I believe, and I was 
boy, I was, I had, like, I was playing, you know, tank driver number one or something. And I was, I had, I had my line, you know, I was ready to go. I was loaded for bear. And, uh, I remember walking up to Vic Morrow and I said, uh, shall we rehearse this? You want to rehearse it? He said, Oh, he's, he's, he's not going to shoot this shit. I said, what? He's not going to shoot it? <laughs> nah, he says, he, he never shoots a script or anything. And, and I remember vividly, and, and you know, I, he was so loose, Bob, and so easy, and, you know, the actors could do no wrong, you know, was, he was just the best. And he treated me like, you know, like I was the, the, the lead player, you know, there was, you know, talk about a, talk about democratic, Jesus. He just loved his actors, you know. So here I am, not knowing what the hell I'm doing, and, and we, we were on the back lot at MGM, and I didn't work that morning because they were behind a little bit. And some the scene that I was in, we shot late in the afternoon. So, so I was hanging around, and he they used to bring they used to give you these box lunches. The studio would take them out to the back lot, and uh, we can get away with that nowadays. And uh, he, I remember he and I sat under a tree out there and ate together. And he said, "What do you want to say? What would you say in this thing? What do you think you want to say?" I said, "What? What would I want to?" We kind of just flitzed around, and and I remember going home and saying, "Well, Jesus, this isn't like acting. This is too easy. This is just guys talking to each other. You know, <laughs> the hell's going on? You know." And I mentioned it to him, and he said, "Well, you know, we're supposed to be aping people here." That was his quote. <laughs> you know, and that was all he was. That was the, that kind of behavior was what he was. You know, so amazingly, you know, so intent upon getting, uh, so that when I. Because I learned it all, I learned that kind of the craft from him, and I loved making movies that way. When I would get involved with somebody who wanted me to hit my marks and say my lines, it was it was, you know, and and not ever paraphrase anything. It was always hard for me. I didn't like doing that stuff because I knew, I knew that what went on between the lines was every bit as important, you know. And then they wind up, and they even and even even if you do it right, you know, they they in that assembly line situation with a lot of these pictures and certainly in television, they just, they cut it, you know, on the line. And so it doesn't look very good. You know what I mean? It's, it's part of why you see such lousy performances on t- TV because, you know, everybody is so focused on, uh, you know, all these writers and producers now and word comes down on high that, you know, don't change an article in a sentence. And, uh, so, you know, you see these guys, what happens is you get out there and you say it and you say it verbatim and you get it out and people go, oh, God, I got through that speech, you know. So what you're seeing as an audience is an actor that's kind of getting through it and, and kind of, you know, faking the, the reality of it. And he's, he's like a deer caught in the headlights, you know. There's always that kind of uh, intensity about it that, you know, is a, is a mistake, really. Yeah, it's funny. And it doesn't... It doesn't, you know, in the old days when they were doing the, the Bogart kind of movies, you know, those guys were all stage actors and they'd hold those big wide shots. And there'd be two people, you know, there wasn't just close up on top of close up on top of close up. So, you know, even if they had to spew a lot of dialogue that wasn't natural, you didn't get the sense of that the way you do, you know, with this stuff. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but. <laughs> no. Perfect sense, yeah. I always like those that kind of film noir framing where the character oh. will kind of come up towards the front of the camera and then you can st- 
they'll see the foreground and they're having oh, their conversation. Yeah. yeah. I'm crazy about that. That's my favorite art form. It's more, boy, I just love it. Double indemnity. The more can you ask for. You know, that's a swell looking anklet, Mrs. Dietrich. <laughs> And, and she pulls her leg in like being real, real, you know, demure. I loved it. <laughs> but the idea of, you know, I wrote a screenplay, actually. I don't know why the hell I got involved in this, but I did about a guy who gets it over his head with a woman, you know, and all that. And it made a lot of noise out in, in California. And I was in meetings with, you know, guys like Sidney Pollack about this picture. But people, they all wanted him to be... Um, saved in the end, you know, he won the, no, 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 he's got to have, uh, you know, he's got to find himself, he's got to uh, have redemption, that was the word they kept using, he said, I said, well, go, I said, this is this formula shit, take a look at double indemnity, take a look at the, out of the past, you know, these women make monkeys out of these guys, they destroy them, you know, that's what's so great about it, I mean, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, I mean, just rolled over him, you know, <laughs> I mean, he did shoot her in the end, you know. So long, baby. He did shoot her in the end. But that stuff was great, though. Jesus, all of them, those Germans shooting that stuff, those, those cameramen and everybody smoking cigarettes. And really, and the dialogue. Boy. Wilder was great at that stuff. I, and, you know, the older I get, the more, more I appreciate it. I sometimes watch it on television in the middle of the night, and I think, Jesus Christ, that was good, you know. That was really good. I mean, Edward G. Robinson playing a sea captain, you know, and something with a big hat and everything, and he was terrific. <laughs> uh, I knew him a little bit. Yeah, my father knew him. I grew up in L.A., and uh, I was born out there, and I can remember being over at his house, and uh, and he said, come here, kid. I was a little kid. He says, come here, I'll show you something. And he flipped a switch on a wall, and, he, and, and you could hear rain on the roof. He had sprinklers on his roof. And he says, I can't sleep unless it's raining. And I like that sound of rain when I say that. <laughs> well, this is Hollywood, right? Everybody has their fantasy, you know. That they, they can act out. They can make happen, you know. So he, he would he'd get in bed at night and turn on the rain. Well, it's a shame that of all the films that you worked with with Robert Altman, you weren't in The Long Goodbye. Oh, The Long Goodbye. No, I wasn't in The Long Goodbye. I, was, I wanted to be in The Long Goodbye, and I was doing something else. I can't remember what happened there. I missed a couple of his movies that I wish I had been able to do. Uh, well, yeah, you were really busy right around that time. I mean, doing stuff like Phase yeah. Four and The Front, and you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I got the What's I, Up what, Doc. What happened on the was I I did The Front with Woody, and I I came back to New York here, and I was going to just stay and do the picture. You know, I had been to New York right out of college. And I just, I, it, one of the reasons I think I wanted to be an actor was to go to New York. I just said, New York, oh God, you got to get to New York. You know? And the studio was going full blast and, you know, Strasburg and all the serious guys were here, you know. And uh, and I met Woody on the front and we became pals and I and he sort of, t- you know, we started running around New York and everything and I was having such a great time and I said, I'm, just, I'm not going back, I'm going to stay here. This is for me. And so I did, I stayed in New York uh well, I really never left, you know. I I left for a few years, and I would come back. This is my third time living here, and I, you know, we made a lot of good pictures in the, here in those days. I mean, there was a lot going on. Uh, what did I do? I did the front, and then I did Manhattan, and then I did uh, no. Well, I don't know what order it was in. I think it was 
I think it was an unmarried woman, the three of them were just almost back to back. And, uh, you know, that's when, and that's when I kind of got, oh, and Nashville was in there too somewhere. Uh, I think I did Nashville first and then, then moved back here. With those films, I became, you know, the original whining yuppie and, uh, <laughs> couldn't get a date for four years and ruined my career. <laughs> My specialty was cheating on my wife, you know. <laughs> oh, God, after an unmarried woman, I mean, my agent called me up. He'd just seen it. He called me from a screening. He said, don't expect to get any work from this. He was appalled, you know. <laughs> so women all hated me and the guys all hated me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still tripping over cable. And, uh, I, geez. Yeah, what are you working on these days? Oh, I do all. You know what ha- what happened to me? That you, I married a Canadian woman, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we had a couple of kids. And I, and she wanted to go back up there. She missed it. And I said, Oh, I'd worked up there. You know, I liked it. it was, and I thought it was a nice place to raise the kids and everything. So I, I went up, and it it, it was it's been really an interesting um, experience because I did a ton of work up there and some really good films. Some of the best parts I've ever had, and they they don't get to the states, you know. So right. for the last for the last twenty years or so, I've been kind of disconnected down here. But I, but I've been just doing one after the next up in Canada, and uh, you know I get this. Well, I don't care who sees them as long as I get to make them. And they're the thing about the Canadians; they're kind of like the Brits. They like old guys, so you get good parts, you get good leading roles, and you know. Whereas here, I'm just you know. Um, I'm sitting on a plane while they blow up a building or something, you know. But so most most of the stuff I do is up there, you know. And, and I kind of can scoot back and forth between Toronto and uh, uh, or wherever they're shooting up there and um, New York, you know. So I haven't been in Hollywood in a long, long time. But uh, most of it just sort of happens around here, or it happens, you know, largely in Canada, or we take off someplace and do these pictures. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I did a really wonderful film. Oh, you know, I get all the, I call it the small pool award. I get all the trophies and all the stuff. I've had a whole different, whole new life up there. It's been interesting. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I've been very happy with it, you know. And it's kind of like, I'll tell you, Mike, it's kind of like Hollywood used to be because it's smaller, you know. It's not nearly as corporate. It's funny. Um, I had, I just did a, I did, I guess, about five shows on a, there's a show I've never seen it. It's on some kind of on demand. I just remember when I, we were trying to get together, and I said I was shooting, and we couldn't do it. That was a show called Rogue. Have you ever heard of a, a television show? That sounds familiar, but I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, I wasn't either. <laughs> it's it's pretty good. I guess, I guess it's um, you know, it's a cable show. It's a, like an on demand thing. All this stuff's going on. I don't even know about, but um. There's a there was a pretty black girl named uh, Tandy somebody or the oh Tandy Newton yeah she's in it although they ki- although they killed her but she was she was she was the lead she got killed a couple of I think I, I think I did one show with her and then they killed her <laughs> she she's moving on to something else she's on going to be on Westworld on on HBO so I was up there I think I did five six episodes I guess and. Uh, you know, it was it, it was reminiscent of Hollywood because it was a Hollywood movie. So there were that meant there were like eighteen producers sitting around doing God knows what, and you know, and we had some script stuff we were messing with, and I 
I'd fool with it and kind of try to get it shaped up, and then we'd have to send it all off to Hollywood to get it approved and all that, you know, kind of stuff. But you know, but 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 we were still at enough at arm's length that it wasn't um, it wasn't brutal, you know. Cole Hauser is the guy's name who's now got the lead. You know who he is? He does all those army movies, I think, and it's kind of yeah, it's kind of violent. Well, we had a great time. I like him. He's a nice guy. He's a, he grew up in Hollywood, you know. His father, his grandfather was Harry Warner. Yeah, and he was he was um, kind of a you know uh, I don't know as much. They did they didn't wind up with any money or anything. And the Warners cut him off or did something. I mean, uh, you know he he grew up kind of hard with um, I don't know. I think there were like five kids in his family. And yeah, it's, it's Stan's Wingshauser, isn't he? Pardon me. Yes. Who's Wing has this? Yeah. Who? Who the hell is that? He talked about him. He said he doesn't know him very well. He was never around. <laughs> <laughs> he was in a lot of action movies. We've actually he, had him on the show before, and he was telling these crazy uh, stories. He grew up living right across from Bob Denver, and he uh, would tell these crazy stories about some of the wild parties Bob Denver was having. <laughs> <laughs> of all people, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was speaking of that. I was talking to a guy on the cell one day who said he wound he was years ago he wound up in the some joint in out in the desert out near Palm Springs or something and there was this guy sitting at the table this old guy and he was all but he was kind of dressed up you know and he looked okay but but old and there were these two young babes and they were just all over him you know like one of them was under the table and the other naked with it was Gabby Hayes. <laughs> You know, you just never know, do you? <laughs> you know, and he had his teeth in, and he looked pretty good. You know, he didn't recognize him at first. So yeah, all those guys, you know, are always having a lot more fun than you think. But Cole is—he's um, a—he he and I did a lot of work on the, on the scripts, and we—you know—I play his father, and so we were and we were estranged, and then we get into this thing where we we have to go hide out in the a cabin, you know, because the mob's after us, and then so we go through all the tough stuff. Then we go out and get drunk together, and then in the next episode, so it was kind of fun, you know. You got, I got to do this whole sort of arc of uh, behavior with him. You know, we we um, you know we had a good time doing it. Richard Schick is a Schiff is in, in, in the thing too. He's another American. Oh, I like him a lot. Yeah, so you know. And, and but I, I guess I brought all that up just to say that I, that's the kind of stuff that's going on up there. And some sometimes it gets down here, but not very often. I did one picture. I did a thing with Julie Christie about Alzheimer's called um, "Away from Her," and that made a kind of a splash down here. Yeah, she uh, she got nominated, I think. So you know, they occasionally they show, but that's the kind of work I've been able to do up there. You know, which I would never or very seldom get to do here. I think. Uh, you know, maybe, but I mean, it's the demographics and so forth, you know, they're not too. And the other thing is I have, you know, when you're out of Hollywood, you're kind of, you know, when you're not around, when you don't, everybody goes in auditions and all that. And I don't want to do that anymore. I've done enough of that. You know, I gave that up years ago. <laughs> I haven't read a trade paper since 1947. <laughs> I don't. I never know what's going. On. And I know I don't know anybody. I mean, when they talk to me about, well, you know, Newt Schwartz is in this, and I don't know. I said, who's Newt Schwartz? I don't have a clue. You know, and then they turn out to be kind of famous guys. 
I did a little thing in a picture because I like these guys a lot. I did a. Do you know those guys that did uh, David Wayne? Uh, you know they did um, what's it called? Wet Hot Summer Camp or oh or yeah yeah. Was. So Wet kinda, Hot American Summer. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that, so he's. I like David. He's kind of a funny guy, and he's around here. So, uh, so I did a, a a couple of days for him on a on a picture. He he. What the hell is the name? Oh, they came together. It was called. It didn't really work. I think they, again the studio got involved, and but um, but I'm sitting there in the makeup one morning, and this kid's sitting next to me, and we start talking. But I'm kind of trying to remember what I have to do, and I'm. Sort of, I don't know who the hell he is, and I'm kind of blowing it off, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh huh. And and it turns out, I can't remember his name now, but I go back into my um, room and I open the New York Times and I see this guy's name and a picture of him, and they say they've just announced Hangover 2, and all these guys are being, each of them is being paid a million dollars. And I said, "Shit, that's the guy I was just sitting next to in the in the room there, you know." Uh, and he was—he's the kind of square one, you know, the one that uh, in in those drunken movies that like the kind of, I think he wears glasses, kind of the, the one they always. Uh, Ed Helms, yeah. Ed Helms, that's who it was, yeah. Good, great, you're good at this. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought I thought and I thought he was like an extra or something, you know. I mean, I was being polite, but I wasn't particularly into it. <laughs> and he's a, you know, he's this fucking star. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there were a lot of them, a lot of good actors in that thing. Um, uh, Michael Shannon did like three minutes, and you know, and Paul Rudd's a terrific guy. I liked him a lot. So it was a lot of fun to make. You know, I just think that it was just so far out that. The studio didn't get it. I think they put people in. I went to a screening and they had people sitting. And they did they in post production. I think they went out and they had to reshoot some or you know shoot ad, shoot some added scenes because they had a couple having dinner and explaining everything you know. And then they would show you these scenes in flashback. And that wasn't the way it was written you know. So I figured somebody had to you know somebody had to have uh, some genius and uh you know and some office decided that. That's the way it had to be, because I got a letter from from David, and he said, um, "Oh, he said it was the post production was a nightmare." So, and I don't think anybody was happy with that, you know. Right. But that's that's the way it is now. It's tough. You, know, you need a lot of money to make these pictures, and they want them done their way. It seems like all that I, I watched all that happen. You know, it kind of went. It kind of was. It was all auteur stuff, and then it kind of. Went back the other way. It's really interesting, yeah. You know, everything got so well, once once Wall Street got into it, I think too. Just, the budgets got so big, you know. That, uh, but Jesus, on these big pictures, they waste a lot of money. Oh my God! The, the only guy that really spent it right was I, I did. Uh, well, I've done a bunch of them, you know, like of the X Men things and all that. But I, I did a Tim. I did one of the Batman on a Tim Burton, and he boy he he put it all on the set and into the. Costumes and the actors and the, he just he spent a ton. I mean, I remember we were shooting that out of Warner Brothers and it was you know Gotham. They had the Gotham um, Square there, you know, and uh, 
and he said to me, I had to give a speech, and he said, drink some coffee or do something. He said, I, I want to see, st- I, I'm trying to get this stuff to work. I got to have steam coming out of your mouth. He said, I, I got these refrigerators in here. And he did, he had this huge, it was like you were inside a, a fr- you know, they were on the goddamn valley, and it was, he had that stage down to about 20 degrees. Oh, and, he, and he said, he said, and there's water dripping and everything, you know, it really was like New York. And he said, um, he said, I talked him into these air, these refrigerators, and he said it cost him a million bucks, and I can't make the you know the steam come out of your mouth, which is what they were for. That was the main reason, you know. And I mean, he just was such his, his attention to detail was just um, amazing, you know. Like I, I can remember looking at a backdrop, um, uh, looking out of the off my office at a backdrop, and uh, uh, you know, you, they just usually paint windows, all right. Well, these were little 3D windows with little stick figures in them and stuff. And I thought, God damn, somebody's been working on this set for about three years. So it's pretty amazing, yeah. But doesn't that movie is so gorgeous? Oh God, they're really. Yeah, uh, you know, he was really something. He he was a, he was another one that um, just he just. I don't know. He's lost in it, you know. He just he loved it. Just loved it, you know. Just, just these guys. They're just, they're real artists. I mean, he's a, just an artist, you know. There's no two ways about it. He'd come in and he hadn't slept in three nights, and you know, he, all that stuff. He'd been out fooling with things and messing with stuff, and you know, terrific guy. Really a good guy. Anyway, I'm way off the subject. We're sitting here shooting the shit, really, aren't we? Yeah, no, I love it though. This is great. <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there anything you can use? I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. No, there's a bunch I can use. I, I really appreciate your time. This has been a real pleasure talking to you. So. Well, anytime. You know, if you you know, you can always call me back if you don't have enough about Saul. I can, I can uh, spin my wheels if, if you want to. Right. If we didn't get enough of that subject in, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to. He showed you conspiracy in JFK. Rebellion in the Doors, Greed in Wall Street, The Agony of War in Platoon, and more Agony of War in Born on the 4th of July. Hi, I'm Oliver Stone, and this summer I invite you to witness my latest creation. It's Oliver Stoneland! Welcome to the future site of Oliver Stoneland, my own amusement park. Let me be your host as I usher you through reality, my reality, a magical place where the objective is not to escape, but to confront. Inspired by my hit film, The Doors, is a feverishly psychotic maze called Mr. Morrison's Wild Ride. It's an enhanced trip through depression, self-delusion, crazed egomania. I wanted everyone to feel the fire that is Morrison. That's all right. You can get on, you little lizard king. (laughs) At Oliver Stoneland, we question authority. Each bathtub fits a family of four. But beware, this ride may remove your will to live. Give me some death. Now, Jim, now. Give me some death. Come on! 
Morrison was the lifeblood of a generation that was sucked down the bathtub drain of the apathetic 70s and into the materialistic cesspool of the next decade. But the ride's a gas. If you're into communications, why not try Talk Radio Town, where you and your family can broadcast your very own radio show and get killed afterwards. But if it's musical merriment that you want, don't miss Platoons, a rabble-rousing salute to a war we've never stopped fighting, as performed by the Combat Rollers. And with show-stopping numbers like Viet Wow, who's going to protest? Viet High, Viet Low, Viet Stop, Viet Go, Viet Down, Viet Now, Viet Boom, Viet Wow! The Combat Rollers are true professionals. They're cynical, angry, fed up, and great skaters. I was very lucky to find them. All right, we're back. Thanks to Mr. Murphy for taking the time to talk to us. To hear the first part of the interview, go back over to our Phase 4 episode that we just put out in December, I think it was. This week, we are talking about Salvador, and especially its director, Oliver Stone. If you didn't get that from the first half of the conversation, I have a dumb question about Salvador for you guys. When you're watching your copy of the movie, were there subtitles for the Spanish parts? There were for, uh, I remember there being subtitles, yeah. How about for you, Jamie? No, no subtitle. Interesting. Maybe I'm imagining it. I'm not sure. I mean, it was very, I won't say it was rudimentary Spanish. I could understand what they were saying enough from both a few words I could pick up and then more the context. And I kind of like that it wasn't subtitled uh, just because for me, and maybe I'm just watching it the wrong way. Maybe there were subtitles. I won't swear to it either way. But for me, watching it without subtitles, I felt very much more like an outsider and felt that strangeness that an American coming to this situation might feel. And I know when Dr. Rock is down there, he says he doesn't even understand Spanish. So he's very much the outsider. I... um I was kind of hoping to see Jim Belushi beat up a little bit more in this movie because, I don't know, he, <laughs> he does an okay job in this film, but he almost always seems to play complainers, and he definitely had that going as Dr. Rock. Yeah, I liked him pretty well in that. He's essentially comic relief, uh, although I guess Boyle's pretty funny on his own. To me, it's, you know, the movie's all of a piece, and, and Boyle is our guide through it, but to, but it's really more the energy of the movie that I think propels us. Now, you were talking a little bit about um, your book, obviously, and you were talking about some of the projects that never came to fruition for Stone. And I know for him, one of his dream projects, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was actually doing a movie about Noriega and all this, the dirty tricks and everything that were happening um, in Nicaragua uh, for many years. It seems like Oliver Stone could almost make like a Central American trilogy if you wanted to. Well, he absolutely could. And in fact, he ended up being a um, a producer on the Noriega film, uh, which starred Bob Hoskins and aired on HBO. And there are actually a number of films. I could have done an entire other book about Oliver Stone as a producer of other people's movies. Uh, he produced Strange Days. And he produced um, the McMartin, the, the TV movie starring James Woods about the uh, indictment, the McMartin uh, pre, you know, the preschool where they thought, uh, you know, child molestation and satanic ritual abuse was going on. 
and he's done he's done a lot of stuff for other people. Freeway, I don't know if you ever remember Freeway with Reese Witherspoon, Reese Witherspoon, and Keeper Sutherland as in a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. Yeah, Matthew Bright's film. Yeah, and there have been there have been a lot of films that he he sort of shepherded. In fact, uh, uh, what was it? The one with um, Jeremy Irons as Klaus von Bülow and Glenn Close as Sonny. Uh, what was Reversal it? Reversal of Fortune. Reversal of Fortune. Reversal of Fortune. He was a producer on that. But yeah, I he he wanted to do Noriega. That didn't work out. And, and I got to go through his files. He took all of his files, like as you can imagine, Oliver Stone is a pack rat. Like he's he's like he's been archiving his stuff since the seventies and he has all of these file boxes filled with things dating back to the late seventies and I got to look through all of them. Like all everything he had pretty much I got to look through and among other things I found a treatment he wrote in the nineteen seventies for, for a movie called Bitter Fruit which was set in the, I think, the 1950s, and it was about the United Fruit Company's intervention in, in Latin America. And it was going to, it was going to be a muckraking drama. And in fact, we reproduce in the book uh, Oliver Stone's two-page synopsis for that movie, and it's pretty interesting. And it was funny because this guy is so prolific. Like, in the 70s, he was writing so many scripts, like, all the time. He was writing spec scripts constantly. Some of them were just he would write them on his own and hope he could sell them. Others were commissioned and he was rewriting other people's work for money. He's written so much stuff that there were a couple of points where I would say, I was looking through your files and I found this screenplay and he'd go, are you sure that's by me? And I'm like, well, it says by Oliver Stone. He's like, holy shit. You know, the story of platoon was written, I think a couple of different ways before he went with the straightforward version. He wrote a version of it that was a kind of a psychedelic, like again, like a, like a, an obscure European art film. Uh, from the 60s, he wanted to do a story about uh, his return to the United States after the war. It was going to kind of be like the second part of this series of films about Vietnam. And he ended up abandoning that because he read uh, Ron Kovic's memoir, Born on the Fourth of July, and he said, wow, this this says pretty much everything that I would want to say, plus the guy is working class and not like a rich New York you know, prep school kid, and that made it more interesting to him that it was a working class guy. So, so he told that story instead. He even was talking about doing a sequel to Salvador, and I'm trying to remember what the idea behind that one was going to be. Beirut, you know, it's oh Beirut. Thank you, Jamie. Beirut. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and he also wrote a script about Russian dissidents in the late 1980s that didn't get made. I bet he's probably written five times, five or six times as many screenplays as we've actually seen finished films by him. I I don't know what he's got cooking next, but he's somebody who always has. I found, you know, in, in covering this business for going on 30 years now, one of the things that I've discovered is that um, the way to survive in the entertainment business is to be working on a bunch of things at the same time. Because you never know what's going to get funding. And you don't want to get stuck in a situation where you're only working on one thing and people keep telling you no, and after a while you start to feel paralyzed or like you're a failure. And if you have three or four or five things that are sort of in various stages of being worked on, you might get a yes for one of them, and suddenly you're in business and you're actually making a movie or a television show. And that's what Stone does. That's what Spielberg does. A lot of the really successful filmmakers who've had a long career do that. Well, that's kind of what's so interesting about how Salvador came to be. I mean, my understanding of it, you correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, 
is that uh, John Daly came to him and said, uh, I want to make both Salvador and Platoon with you. Which one do you want to do first? And because Platoon had suffered so many setbacks and and, and, uh, the backing had pulled out at the last minute, he was kind of superstitious about it. So he said, well, let's do Salvador. And, And Daly said, okay, Salvador it is. Let's do that first. Well, the story that he told me, I, I think there's some truth to what you're saying in the sense that he did feel by that point that Platoon might be jinxed. Like, I think he was probably feeling like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football away from Lucy. Like, I'm not going to take another run at this football. What's the point? But he did have a two-picture deal, and one of them was for, for Platoon. He told me that the reason for doing Salvador first was he had this two-picture deal and Platoon, he felt, was the more important of the two. And he wanted to basically do Salvador first as to get his strength up. You know, to have shot another feature and then go directly on the Platoon. And then he's like, you know, he's still got the adrenaline in the system. He's picked up all of these practical skills. He's sort of back in the zone as a director. He hadn't directed a movie since, you know, 1982. That worked out. That worked out for him. And in fact, he's done versions of that other points during his career. Talk radio was not originally on his radar. Uh, he was going to do Born on the Fourth of July, and then Tom Cruise dropped out because he got a part in another movie. I want to say it was Rain Man. And he said, hey, Oliver, I got this other part, and I really, really want to do it. Can we bump production of Born on the Fourth of July? And he's like, well, sure, Tom Cruise, whatever you want to do. And then he suddenly had a six-month gap to fill. And so he said, what else have we got? And he went to see talk radio on Broadway and went, holy shit, this feels like a kind of movie that uh, that I could direct and be really interested in. And so they made it. And they banged it out really, really fast, like two months or something like that. And that was really to get practice, like to get himself in the zone to direct Born on the Fourth July. And both of those films were made in Dallas. And they were shot on the sound stages of Los Colinas Studios, which is just north of Dallas. And so what happened was he got, you know, he made this movie talk radio. He shot it on the sound stages where he was going to shoot a lot of Born on the Fourth of July. He was living in Dallas. He was getting to know all of the film and television people there. And then the time came to make Born on the Fourth of July, and everybody was a well-oiled machine. There's at least three, maybe four points during his career where he's done that, where he's done two movies back-to-back. And basically, the first movie was practice for the second one. When it comes to this book, The Oliver Stone Experience, why Oliver Stone? Uh, I mean, your last book was, I know you did the one on Mad Men, and then you'd done one on uh, Wes Anderson. So what... Actually, t- actually, two on Wes Anderson. I did the Grand Budapest Hotel book. So why switch to Stone? I, I don't think I could find two more different directors if I really looked hard. Well, that was part of the appeal of it was, you know, I like a lot of different kinds of filmmakers, and Stone is about as different from Oliver Stone as you can get. I can't announce it yet, but I'm working on another book, uh, possibly another filmmaker book, and the, and the filmmaker is different, again, from an Oliver Stone or a Wes Anderson, and I'm very excited about that. Um, but I would say the short answer with Stone is Stone was tremendously important to me as a young film goer. Like, Stone is Stone and Spike Lee. Those are probably the big two for me in the 80s, and maybe Terry Gilliam, although he wasn't as productive. They really, really did a lot to open my eyes to the possibilities of American movies. And I got to tell you, people who came of age, like attending movies in the 80s at multiplexes, not at art houses, because there was a lot of interesting stuff going through the art houses, but in the local multiplex, the 80s was a grim time. It was a really grim time. Like the Hollywood movies that were being made were often 
crass, simplistic, and just kind of bad. Like, even the movies that were big, big hits, like, if you go back and look at something like Top Gun or Rambo or, or Fatal Attraction or Flashdance or Beverly Hills Cop, like, they're entertaining in certain ways, but they don't feel well-made. Like, they don't feel like there's not a sense of aesthetic elation to those movies that you get from watching some of the smaller films from that era, stuff like, you know, Blue Velvet or Blood Simple or Brazil or Salvador or something wild or movies along those lines. Coming across somebody like Oliver Stone was a revelation to me because it showed that you could make uh, really beautiful looking, interesting looking movies at the Hollywood level with name actors who were being challenged in some way to do something they didn't usually do. And it played in the multiplexes alongside Rocky Four. That was cool. And And I was at the point where I just thought, oh, you can't really do that anymore. Like, the the era of the 60s and 70s, like, the personal film made at the studio level, it was kind of, if it wasn't entirely over, it was close to being over by that point. Like, with the failure of films like Heaven's Gate and The Right Stuff, Stone showed that there was still some life left in that, and Spike Lee did as well. That's the main, that's the main reason. And then beyond that, like, I didn't realize this until I started actually doing the book, is um, Stone is just a great storyteller. Like, as a person, like, I could listen to the guy all day, and, and it's a bit like being trapped in a confession booth with James Woods, if you can imagine that. And, like, there's sections, like, this book has a lot more text than any of my other books. Like, it's not as many pictures, there's a lot more text, and it's just because Oliver Stone is so interesting. And there are a lot of points where you kind of, like, he's leading you off the beaten path, like... We have a whole section where we're arguing about the films of Martin Scorsese, which ones are the best. And there's a section where we're like arguing about his portrayal of women on film and whether or not it's sexist. And there's this whole section where he talks about race relations in America and American cinema and like America's legacy of violence. Like it's almost as much of a political book as it is a film book. And, you know, I love Wes Anderson and he's a friend of mine, but like we never got into like you know, the found the, the founding of the Black Panther Party and the history of U.S. intervention in Central America when I was talking to Wes about the life aquatic. You know, like, it's not something that comes up. And, and Stone actually asked me at one point, jokingly, he said, so Matt, how does this feel? Like, how does working on this book feel after, after doing two books with Wes? And I said, my immediate answer to that is I've never had any reason to ask Wes Anderson what his first kill felt like. <laughs> <laughs> Stone's audio commentaries are always a treat. I like him kind of crawling into your ear, and you're right about his voice. He does have this kind of warm voice. I would almost like him to be one of my film professors. This is kind of funny, but in The Doors, his, he always gives himself a cameo, and in The Doors, he's, the, he's Jim Morrison's film professor who tells him that his movies are pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is great. But yeah, he's, he's, he does have a wonderful voice. He's actually a really good actor. Stone is a really good actor, and in fact, he took a bunch of acting classes at the Stella Adler School in the 70s, and he, uh, he, he was trying to find himself, and he actually took a lot of acting classes. He's a very good actor in his own right, and he even took, he told me, a modern dance class at one point. He was taking a modern dance class, and he's wearing like a leotard and prancing around in a modern, modern dance class, and I said, please tell me there are photographs of you in this modern dance class, and he paused, and he said, no. It definitely took a little bit of um, the piss out of himself to play himself in Dave. I thought that was a pretty gro- good term. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, he actually gets, he still gets a kick out of that. I told him, I, I, I mentioned that to him. I said, you did play, and I said, 
you know, your your weirdest cameo to me is you played yourself and Dave. And he said, yeah, but I, in that movie, remember, I'm the only guy who knows the truth. Right. And and in fact, there's uh, I, I don't know if we're going to make it into the book because the book is already way too long. It's funny. It's like, you know, I feel like if it's an Oliver Stone, if it's a book about Oliver Stone, it should be a little bit excessive. But um, one of the parts that I don't know it's going to make the final cut is we have a whole section about parodies of and tributes to Oliver Stone. And it includes the... Uh, we have fr- we have still friends from the itchy and scratchy episode that's directed by Oliver Stone. Do you remember that from The Simpsons? Yes. And the Ben Stiller show had that sketch called Oliver Stoneland. Do you remember this? Where it was like it was an ad for it was like a wall. It was like Disney World, but it was Oliver Stoneland, where the objective is not to escape but to confront. Well, I don't think they could have made Wayne's World two without having the doors to parody off of. No, 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 they definitely, they definitely could not have. That's, that's, uh, that's very, very true. I, I, I actually, he told me at one point about, you know, he was going to direct Mission Impossible 2 at one point. Oh, wow. I would have to look at the manuscript to remember exactly why that didn't work out, but his screenplay to Mission Impossible 2, Tom Cruise and, and his partner Paula Wagner, uh, rejected it. And the reason was, as he said, it was like, he said, you know, I didn't really understand what the Mission Impossible films were. And like, they're, they're action driven. They need to have a certain amount of big action every 10 minutes because that's the kind of film that it is. Like, it's like a James Bond film in that way. And my version of it was the story of like, it was basically like the plot of the second Terminator or like the backstory of the Terminator. It was more like Colossus, the Forbin project and like apparently Ethan Hunt somehow began uh, like investigating this military computer that was, it was like, actually, you know what it was like? It was like uh, the second Captain America film. The idea was there was a supercomputer that was going to take over um, handling all national security issues for the United States to sort of streamline things and like pick, you know, find out, identify problems before they occurred so that they could nuke them or assassinate them or whatever. And of course the computer gained sentience and it wants to like, you know, commit genocide or start Armageddon or something. So, you know, it was more like, uh, it was like a classic science fiction movie about the computer that gains the ability to think and wants to wipe us all out. And, uh, no wonder Tom Cruise looked at that and was like, no, no thanks. <laughs> I would have <laughs> no, watched it. Maybe not. And then you see, actually, you see Mission Impossible 2 and Tom Cruise is riding a motorcycle in slow motion and his feathered hair is rippling in the breeze. And you're like, that's a little more like what he wanted, I think. Now, I'm a big fan of John Woo, but I think I actually would have liked to have seen Oliver Stone's Mission Impossible 2 more. If only for the two-page speech that, that Tom Cruise would have given about, uh, you know, the ethics of artificial intelligence, which I'm sure would have been in there. So once again, the name of the book is The Oliver Stone Experience, coming out fall 2016. Hopefully it'll be available for pre-order rather soon, or I'm sure, Matt, you'll give us your URLs and all that kind of stuff so we uh, know where to go to keep up with you in the release of this thing. But for now, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You gonna win? I'm gonna dance. There's a spot open in the chorus line. We're auditioning tomorrow morning. I think you should try out. I got an audition! Okay, ladies. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. From the creators of Basic Instinct. 
the last time they took you to the edge. This time, they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. You got more natural talent when you dance than anybody I've ever seen. She's going down to the stardust. She's going to be in the show. Right? If someone gets in your way, step on them. It's not fair. It's not about fair. It's about power. You're a stripper. Don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling. She's exciting. And she's what Las Vegas is all about. The passion is real. I fall in love with you. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. That's right. Next week, we are talking about one of the most controversial films we've ever tackled on this show. We'll be talking about Paul Verhoeven's tale of excess and artifice, Showgirls. Until then, I want to thank this week's guest co-host. Jamie, what is the happenings over at Movie Geeks United, sir? Well, January is documentary month for Movie Geeks United. So we're featuring, uh, throughout the month, we're featuring 25 interviews with top cinematographers. Uh, like Brett Morgan and Liz Garbus and B. Pennebaker and Frederick Wiseman and on and on and on. So just go to moviegeeksunited.net for the full lineup of that series and all of our other shows. And so, Matt, I know you've got the book coming out. What else is happening for you at the moment? Well, at the moment, I you know, I can't talk about anything because nothing is 100% set. But I can tell you that there will be at least one more television book along the lines of Mad Men Carousel. Uh, and, it, and it will be about one of the dramas that I can't seem to shut up about. I'm also trying to get together the next director book. Uh, and hopefully that'll come together soon. Um, so those are the those are the two main things. And the Oliver Stone experience is coming out in fall of 2016. And also, like later that year, is um, TV in parentheses, the book, which is the book that I wrote with uh, Alan Sepinwall, my old friend from the Star Ledger, who's the lead TV critic for HitFix. That's a an encyclopedic work that is a list of all the greatest sitcoms and dramas in the history of American television dating back to 1950. And that's something we've been working on for quite a while, Alan and me, and we just turned in the manuscript, and we're very excited about it. So, lots to read, hopefully. Now, Matt, you have been associated with a lot of different websites, a lot of different publications over the years. Do you still write for New York Magazine? Yeah, I'm the TV critic for New York Magazine, and I'm the editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com, where I also publish reviews. I was curious, how did you get that gig at RogerEbert.com? I, you know, Roger was famous for supporting the works of a lot of other critics who were not as famous and influential as Roger, and I was one of those guys. Like, he was very nice to me, very complimentary, and would promote some of my stuff sometimes, and he brought me out to Ebert Fest a couple of times. He sent me some very encouraging emails over the years. I went out to Ebert Fest the year that he died, and his widow, Chaz, asked me to have breakfast with her, and she said, we would like you to take over as editor-in-chief of the site. And I, that was not what I thought it was, that was, conversation was going to be about. Like, I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but that was not what I thought it would be. And I said, uh, yes, because what else do you say when somebody said that? Duh. You know, like, 
Let me think about it. You know, it's like, yeah, of course. We you know when do I start? It's uh, it's a great site. We got great writers, and you know, in continuing the Roger tradition, no two people are alike there. Like everybody is their own voice. Everybody writes their own way. They've got their own interests, and I'm just awfully fond of them. It's a great job. You know, I know it's 2016 already, but I did want to go back to a film from 2015, which I don't think that you could say enough good things about. Can you tell me about how much you enjoyed the film Dirty Weekend? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Dirty Weekend. I, you know, until you said that, I was like, what's that? Like, I've successfully, like, cut that out of my brain somehow. I don't know how a man should do it. But, yeah, that was terrible. That was definitely one of the worst movies that I saw. Last year, and I saw some per- I saw some pretty bad ones. But you know, I I really don't like to see bad movies, and I and I know that I know that there's a certain uh, there's a perception that critics enjoy teeing off on a bad film, but I really don't. I always feel like I'm putting down a you know a, a diseased animal or something. Like it's like I take no pleasure in it at all. But there are some times where I do feel a little bit angry at a movie for taking 90 minutes to two hours of my life and giving me nothing back, and that was definitely one of those times. Yeah, that seemed to be one of your uh, your low points looking back through last year's reviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although none of them, uh, I you know, I I've been told that none of them will ever approach uh, my review of Sphere. Oh which God! If you if you looked at it, if you ever want to look it up on the internet, that's. Uh, but I would say don't read it at work. NSFW. Yes, without a doubt. It's it's basically pornography that happens to take the form of a film review. Well, thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. Thank you, Jamie, for coming back again. We always appreciate hearing your voice on here. We'll have links to where folks can go and find out more about you guys over at our website, projection-booth.com. So I would invite people to come on over to the site. Rate and review us over on iTunes. Give us your money on Patreon. Those are just a few ways that you can help us to afford to buy James Belushi a drink and to take over the world.
And now, with more information about the park, it's Oliver Stone. Start your day out on Main Street, 1964, where the American dream died just after Kennedy did. While you're at the park, be sure to take a trip down Lil Wall Street, where you have to avoid the falling stockbrokers. Where's Charlie Sheen when you need him? And if you're in a really adventurous mood, why not give the Born on the Fourth of July bumper chairs a go-round? It's 90 solid seconds of clanking metal and bitter regret. I believe you need to ride this one a number of times to fully feel the frustration and anguish of the Vietnam vet. Or if you're in a different type of mood, try late 60s land, where the atmosphere is bitter and discontented, but the salad bar is all you can eat. And coming in the fall of 94, experience the wonder of the Hall of Conspiracies, where every hour on the hour I'll expose the fabrications of our government through the use of animatronic robots. We are through the looking glass, people. Black is white, and white is black. Who did the president? Oh, man, it's a mystery wrapped inside a riddle, wrapped inside an enigma. Sure, they're only robots, but aren't we puppets tied to the strings of corruption? On your way out, you'll be able to visit and have your picture taken with Oscar, one of our highly coveted pals. So come and enjoy the distortion of reality that is Oliver Stoneland. Why isn't he bald? I told you people, Oscar's bald. I know I have six of them. I'm working with incompetence here. I have a vision of this thing. How come no one else can see it? I went to Vietnam. I'm not afraid to kick butt here. Now who's If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.